everyone and welcome back to the podcast. In today's episode, we have my friend and physiotherapist, James Lee. James is specifically a musculoskeletal physio, and we can get into what exactly that means and a whole range of other topics that I'm really hoping will help my audience today. I think James is actually my first ever physio on here, other than Joe Gibson, of course, but she and I focus so specifically on pelvic floor, and I think this one we're going to try and make it a bit more broad. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on. Welcome, James. Hi, Chloe. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I'm, I'm so, so excited that you're here. Um, I've, James and I have been talking about this over the last couple of weeks. Because James is a busy man, and I've been trying to get him on because <laughs> I'm a desperate, desperate to have like quite a performance-focused episode come out, and he is the man to go to for that. Because when I say physio, I and we will get onto this, I think people think of like, you know, sports massage or like stretching exercises. Like James is a very brilliant um, specialist in what he does. And I've always been super hesitant to get like a, a physio on here because I think it's so visual what you do. And I, we've always been very nervous that it wouldn't really translate on a podcast, but we have talked about it. We formulated a plan and we're going to do our absolute best to educate and inform the audience today. So James, first and foremost, please introduce yourself and explain to my audience about what it is that you do um, and your job and your passion. <laughs> Go for it. Thank you. So yeah, I'm a um, physiotherapist by trade. I did um, a sports um, rehabilitation degree in Twickenham to begin with, and then moved on to do a physiotherapy master's. And um, since graduating, I've worked in the NHS have worked um, in private practice, have worked with sports teams at the Commonwealth Games um, and now um, solely work as a physiotherapist in private practice in Parsons Green at Beyond Health, which is where Chloe and I met. Um, and my role is more rehab focused, um, so less of the hands-on and massage side of physiotherapy um, and more assessment from a movement perspective and strength perspective that then guides people to a return to whatever it is they love doing that they can't do because of pain or um, time off of doing that particular activity or sport. We're going to get on to James and my kind of history together and how that could be applicable to people listening that are going through completely different things. But kind of I, while we're just staying on the, the role of a physiotherapist, I mean, I get asked every day of my life by my clients. And every time I do a Q&A on Instagram, can you please help me? I've got a torn rotator cuff or can you please help me? You know, I've done something to my knee. I'm, I broke my ankle at a wedding last year and I'm still having really bad range of motion problems in the gym. And I always feel a bit guilty and like a bit of a cop out being like, no, no, I can't help you. <laughs> I'm a personal trainer. I am not a physiotherapist. You need to go and get assessed. So James, you're the perfect person for for me to get some backup here. Can you please explain the different roles between a physiotherapist, how it's completely different from the role of a PT, even, you know, specialist subjects, you know, like I say, I had Joe on and she specializes in pelvic floor and you specialize in in musculoskeletal things. Can you please talk about what it what is the role of a physio? Everything from you know, rehab exercises after injury or surgery, but also behavior changes of your clients and psychological support that you often find that you have to provide them. Performance-specific coaching. Can you talk about this, please? Yeah, of course. I think um, it's really important to start with that everyone understands their remit and the limits of their practice. And I think you'll find 
really good physiotherapists, really good personal trainers that will understand that. And it's important to have that separation um, and understand who's really good at doing what. Um, and so from a physiotherapy perspective, we, um, even within musculoskeletal physiotherapy, we can have um, separate roles that uh, more define a niche in your practice or your the, the your level of experience that you've got. And that can be from the initial um, meeting with someone and the assessment process, um, whether that's through um, hands-on treatment, hands-on technique and assessment um, to diagnosis and referral to the right consultants when it's needed to. If, there's, if the injury or problem needs further investigation or management, it's important for us to understand where we how far we can take it and when we need to get in the rest of the um, team involved. Then we, we sort of move into earlier movement and getting low level exercises that are suitable for the type of injury that you've got and that try and get you back into moving um, as quickly as possible to reduce any muscular um, wasting or muscles that don't want to activate as quickly because there's been pain around that area. And so it's important for a physiotherapist to help um, guide that process um, in a shared decision-making way with the person involved because it's really important for us to educate the um, person we're seeing um, so they have a full understanding of what process is, what, what we're doing, why we're doing it, um, to reassure, to make sure that and to, that we're giving some clarity and that it is safe to, to move and to reduce any further um, compensatory movements or behavioral patterns that might change due to having an injury that will cause people to move differently or cause people to become more protective of certain movements or become fearful of movement. And so it's important for us to take on the role of not just someone that pokes or prods or gives out exercises, but to um, be a trusted soundboard that can answer questions that need answering in an honest way with good evidence to support it. Um, and in a way that also informs you of your options. One thing I find really interesting, one kind of topic on everything you've just said is that I was really surprised when I first started seeing Joe, who I was obviously seeing for a good couple months before I started seeing you. Um, and I was always really surprised at how, especially at the beginning of our conversations when I would go in to see her, they, she was very much like, how are you? how are you finding, you know, being pregnant? How, and then after having my, my daughter, how are you finding her being a first time mom? How's your relationship? Like, how's everything going? And there was such an awareness before we started talking about what I, what was going on, you know, with my body and what I needed to do in, in the break between seeing her. There was so much of an awareness of like that, a lot of that really comes after you know how the client is doing psychologically. And it was the same with you. When I started to see you, and we'd stand there and you'd be like, have you done your exercises? And I'd be like, no. And you'd be like, why? What's going on? And I'd be like, I'm so tired. I'm so overwhelmed. Like I'm finding it really hard to like find my my everything. Like you find it so hard postnatally to find your your, your life, your schedule, your priorities again. Like I'm really stuck. And you're like, okay, that's okay. Let's let's go through them now. And like, I feel there's such an emphasis of the psychology of it. Do you enjoy that part of what you do? Do you find that? quite tough I know as a coach sometimes I find it to be quite emotionally exhausting especially if you if you go having one of those days where a lot of your clients have gone through something and you're like oh my gosh how, how do you manage that type of that element of it um I think it's, yeah, it's a really um, important 
um, point to make because you on a on a busy day you might come across 10 15 and um, people with with different or similar um issues in terms of why they can't engage with the exercise um problems at home or or struggling to find time and i think it's really important for us to try and when we're approaching a physiotherapy management plan with someone is to figure out what's realistic and and lay out some um foundations with them and understand understand why they can't commit to it because it you know it, we try and make it as realistic and as simple to follow as possible and that's through the education understanding and that hopefully drives some level of accountability for the programs but equally that life gets in the way and it's important for us to try and understand how we can make it easier to engage with um and why that person isn't um, able to complete it and that might be um finding the time it might be something that just needs our um guidance a little bit more and it, re- it requires a, a good level of emotional intelligence from the physiotherapist to be able to to be a little bit like a chameleon and adapt to the person that comes in that and that's what makes it personal in that sense is yeah, first of all we're, we're human we want to in- interact with people and we enjoy i enjoy interacting with different people and um and the challenges that come alongside that which say challenges being how we can get the best result for that person and how well we can get them to engage in a um in a program that gets them the best result but also allows them to do it and have a life alongside that what about like um fear around pain and stuff because there's so much of what you do and we are going to get onto this in a minute i'm just really interested in this before we do like if you have a client come back from, you know, injury or um, surgery and, and they're very nervous about pain in that area. And I saw it with Jane, my James after he had his back surgery. Like there was some real psychological trauma tied up in what happened to him. Does that play quite a role in you you and your kind of clients? Absolutely. I think um, the more um, someone is fearful or protective of something, the less fluid they're going to move and the more protective they'll be of certain movements which might let's say for back pain um to begin with it's quite it's very common um however it is very also very common that that's where the type of injury that people really struggle with from a um, fear and avoidance perspective um so understanding what they're scared of and why um and then always tackling it head on and and discussing why and 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 reasoning why it might actually be safe and be okay to move. Yeah, it's really interesting now when I see when Jane, because he did his, obviously it was, you know, degenerative, but when he went, I, I threw a plastic bottle at him across the kitchen. I was like, think fast. And he went to bend down to get it. And that's when his back went. And he, he never, he didn't stand up upright again for months after that. It was awful. And now I see it so many times. If like our daughter drops something or he drops something on the floor, he looks at it and he always takes a beat. I see him like he has to kind of mentally prepare himself. He takes a deep breath and he bends down and gets it. But you do see how much of an impact that can have. Okay, so let's get into some actual kind of physicalities here. Um, so, okay, we, as we've kind of talked about, when I first came to you, um, it was because Joe had got me to a place postnatally where my, my, my body was finally ready to start lifting again internally. So... Let me ask you about where you start with clients in their return to training after injury or surgery. Can you talk me through what happens when you get a client who's now healed or is very much into the healing process and how you grade their return to training and you build them up back into your sport? Because I know you do this with weightlifters, skiers, runners, cyclists. Um, Is there a map that you follow re a graded return to training? 
Yeah, so I think it would always start with um, a sit down and a conversation about what it is that that person would like to get back to doing. And that can be, as you said, anything from, I just want to be able to play football with the kids through to um, performing at an elite level. Um, and so understanding that from the get-go really helps me and physiotherapists map out what might be the most appropriate and effective route to returning to that um, activity. What we'll find is a lot of people will focus on the things that they can't do and get really, really wound up about that. Um, so it's really important for us to have a conversation of focusing more on the positive side of it and what you can do, keeping people exercising, getting them better conditioned and fitter so that when they do come to being able to engage with the level of exercise that they want to, it's not a complete shock to the body um, and that we gradually are able to expose you and the injured area towards the demands of the activity or training type that you want to engage with. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, this is what we so interesting that I think when we started, I was instructed to only really lift, you know, a similar weight to my baby at that time. So I don't know, like, I don't know, six, six to eight kgs or whatever. And then after Joe's assessment, Joe would determine it was very funny. Having Joe assess me while I lifted weights is quite a life-changing experience. <laughs> but she would assess me and she'd be like, okay, you can go up to this weight and then no, and then we stop. And how constantly going back to James and I was like a ping pong ball between the two of them going back and forth to get me. And, you know, I think a lot of people might be like, oh, that's, you know, that's all well and good, you know, but that's my job. Like I had to figure out how to get back to training and how to, you know, and if I was going to do that and if I was going to spend the time and the money to do that, I had to figure out if I could actually make it worth my while in a much bigger picture, in a much more longer term sense. And that I think is really where James came to the fore. And I mean, I remember I said to you, I, I need to be retaught how to engage my core and my pelvic floor and my lish, yes. But I, I also have like quite long standing form issues that really need correcting at this point. Like my deadlifts, my, I've always struggled with my hips coming up first and my deadlifts, which is wrong. I have, you know, some some weaker areas of my lower body specifically that I really need to work on, like like my glutes, um, I've always really struggled with. Can you start me as a blank canvas and, and teach me good form and correct muscular engagements like I'm a total newbie? And you did, and it vastly improved my lifting and my coaching as well. What would you say are some of the main form issues that you see in, in weightlifters specifically and what lifts come with the biggest threats because of that reg regarding injury? It's a really um, good question. It's, it's, there's a lot of um, arguments on both sides of the coin for form and technique. We know that the, mo the for the most part, people that are untrained that um, haven't lifted heavy weights for, for a long period or have experience in it or have, have been taught perhaps and might be more susceptible to to injury because of improper technique however the literature supports that actually so let's say for a deadlift lifting with a flex spine may not actually be um something that reduces the risk of injury so actually lifting with a flex spine can be safe if it's conditioned um however yeah. uh, the caveat to that is if you're untrained and you haven't lifted with a flex spine then actually it's probably safer if you're doing a compound lift and probably more performance benefit the benefit to performance to lift heavier and and to get a better um, and stronger position to lift with um, a more stable position. Um, and I think it comes down to, or often it'll come down from people trying to go too heavy too soon and into movements where they might not have the um, 
foundational strength or capacity to tolerate more bigger compound lifts um and looking at so that 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 would look at spine position head and neck position will be the common ones foot positioning um again i guess the the common misunderstanding or misconception is that you need to have your feet hip width apart pointing straight forwards um that'll be quite a common one like show, show me a squat and people sort of go straight to hip width and feet pointing forwards where they can't get very low and so there's some modifications that we can make that are safe and effective to allow people to open up hips or ankle um, and allow for more movement happening at those joints um and i think it's really important to with, with all these things is the, the key sort of i guess the common denominator would be starting simple yeah and um, speaking to someone that knows how to lift a weight properly uh, whether that's a personal trainer or a physiotherapist and uh, wherever you are in your journey whoever you are engaging with exercise first of all it'd be i think it's really important for anyone um to be coached and have an understanding of to what to do what's safe where some risks may lie and how best to structure um training so that you don't want to start deadlifting and then feel like you need to do it every day um yeah because yeah. <laughs> it's not it's not necessary no, I love that. I And you know what? Talk to me about foot positioning because I remember vividly with you and we, it was the first time I was going down into, I think it was a barbell back squat. So this is big, right? To move on from goblet to barbell back squat for me, postnatally, I was like, oh my God, I'm finally here. And I said, like, okay. And like I say, I said to James, I want you to treat me like a complete blank canvas. Like I'm a total beginner. I have no education in this. What do I do? And I looked at him and I said, like, okay, foot positioning. And he was like, I don't care. It's always there matched. And I was like, really? Like, you don't you don't need hip width. You don't need wide stance. Toes pointed out, toes pointed out. He was like, I don't care as long as they're matched. So talk to me about foot positioning and lifts, what maybe the misconceptions are and what is a physio, you know, and, and biomechanically you you just want to see. Um, so yeah, I remember, was it your right foot or your, your left foot that was... Always out. <laughs> yeah, I turn out to one side and the other foot was dead straight. Um, yeah, and it I think- has something because i have bursitis in my right knee and i don't know what it is is it's not conscious it's completely unconscious because of that my other foot just goes (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i think look i think with with sport uh, we see asymmetries all the time and that that's something that we can't completely um say is a bad problem i think there are there's there's asymmetries in sport and, and activity and that's what makes people good at what they do um but um i think symmetry in lifting and and especially if you're doing a a progressively heavier lift gives you more stability um, and it will allow you to perform that lift um, with better control and to produce more force in a more advantageous position Um, so I'd always um, look from the ground up at foot positioning and perhaps start with no shoes on um, and look at how much contact people are getting through their whole foot or where they're getting um, contact on their feet when they are doing Specific lifts um so it might be common for people to lose contact underneath their big toe or whilst they're squatting or their toes come off the ground when they're squatting or some people even squat with with their heels lifted first time they ever squatted show me a squat and it's straight down heels off the ground um so it's get, getting a more um stable position i'll use the terminology of a tripod um so you have the base of your big toe the base of your little toe and your heel that if you imagine any tripod gives you stability from the ground up and it's something that then can i, I sort of progress through to a um into running that I'll, that can for people that are runners will, will sort of try and encourage a tripod landing on the um middle part of their foot 
to give them that stable landing and to push off from. Um, so it, it sort of denounced stability having that tripod position and that, that tripod position might for some people be better felt with feet pointing straight forwards with feet slightly turned out. So I think it's as important to be flexible because ev- everyone is different. We're not all robots. Everyone has different um, preferences and, and different areas of um, mobility or lack of mobility, whether it's from a, from injury history of ankle sprains or tightness in hips that might limit um, the depth of a squat or the sort of fluidity of a squat. And so it's important to start and with the blank cameras, as you said, and see how people move without any changes and what the knock-on effect of foot positioning has initially or whether that might be, okay, would, for you, I think it'd be better just to stay at this depth of movement. And because as you, as you go lower, you start to lose control at this level or you start to lose contact through your foot. Um, so that's hey. giving you stability because... Stability and control, if it's not happening at the ground, is going to be required somewhere else. And that's going to cause different areas to work a lot harder than they have to, um, which those muscle groups at that stage early on, again, with, if the load's low enough, it might not cause problems. But long term, if if there's more of a compensation further up um, and the capacity of the muscle um, further up the chain is weaker, let's say around the pelvis or around the core, um, that might lead to lower back pain or um, issues with um, being able to perform a squat to the best of your ability. I love that you went to the tripod because I was going to come. I was gonna, I wrote that down next after foot positioning. Um, just one more thing I wanted to pull out of the last couple of things you said. Talk to me about a neutral spine. Why is it important? In what lifts is it most important? Um, and any kind of audio tips on how people can maybe, even if they're just sat down listening right now, feel what a neutral spine feels like and what lifts it's really important that they adopt that position. Neutral spine, again, um, similar to um, lifting with neutral spine or lifting with a with flex spine, I think it's important um, that everyone has an idea of what that feels like. Um, because let's say in, in a Pilates setting, it will be um, sort of quite an important um, go-to where um, it's, uh, you get better control around the pelvic girdle and around sort of the lower abdominal muscles and rib cage. From a pain and, and a movement perspective, I think it's really important to um, not be too concerned with um, being always in a neutral spine. This should be sort of only drilled really to find um, differences between lordosis and kyphosis, which is different different um, lumbar, lower back positions. There's there's an element of safety in lifting with a, a spine that isn't uh, is in a, in its most solid position. Yeah. Um, however, I think it's the, the literature would suggest that actually it's safe to to do to lift in and out of those positions and we shouldn't be too focused all the time on being always in a neutral spine um, so it's, it's a topic that's getting a lot of um a lot of air at the moment i think it's it's important for us not to demonize not being in a neutral spine um but also to understand for people that it's really important to have that body awareness and control of what might be the most advantageous position to keep you comfortable to keep your form in the strongest position and to improve your performance in squat type movements or deadlifts Um, and that can be driven by um, low level map based work all the way through progress to 
finding it in unusual spine in, in different lifting positions. I've been trying to focus more on a hip hinge and a squat than knee flexion recently. And what I found happening was that like um, lower spine curvature. I, I am slightly lordotic anyway, but I think it's, I don't know, because I, I used to dance. I used to dance. And I think I kind of, it, it was quite self-taught. I don't know if it, I don't know if it was like a, you know, an, an actual skeletal issue or if it's just something that I got into the habit of doing, you know, like people that round their shoulders when they sit. Um, anyway, and I noticed that trying to trying to break at the hips first and turn the squat more into a predominant hip hinge than a knee flexion movement, my lower spine started to really take that. And I was like, oh no, I can't, this isn't working for me. And like, unless I go in and see James and I got full disclosure, I haven't been in to see James in months and I need to, because if I want to start changing the dynamics of a lift that I'm doing, I need someone to watch me and help me do that. Cause I just immediately, I would say after one session, my lower back was absolutely like, nah, don't know what you were doing there, mate. Don't do that again. Um, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think everyone, as everyone's built differently, I think if we're looking at a, a deeper level in terms of like femur length and like biomechanics um, and how people move, everyone moves differently. And so when you put a load in a different position, whether that's in a trap on a trap bar or on your back or in front of you in a deadlift on a barbell, um, that the movement in your body and the movement you experience will be different between every person that we see and we coach. So if we try and um, change everyone to fit the same model, we'll end up forcing movement that might not want to happen um, or might not be available to that person um, and loading areas that might not necessarily need or want to be loaded for that person as well. So it's really important that it is a very individual approach and it you, you take into consideration um, how people move and their injury history. And again, I think probably linking it back to what that person wants to achieve. Is it that they just want to squat comfortably and healthily and not fussed about you know, lifting really heavy? Or is it that they want to you know, hit a new PBs and we have to find the, the most stable um, controlled position that allow people to do that? Um, some yeah. people that I've seen might just, let's say for ankle or hip reasons, might not be too comfortable with going really low. So we focus on, okay, you squat above 90 degrees, but you can, within the parameters of that, you can go progressively as heavy as you want. But just to this point, that's what's going to keep you more comfortable. I love all those points. The subjectivity, I think, is so often overlooked. And yet you have your archetypal or like textbook form, but you're right. Everybody's biomechanics are different. The way somebody feels comfortable or again like we talked about you know post-injury or surgery or anything um sometimes people have to move differently to optimize that movement and you know obviously there's bad form you can't deny shit form <laughs> you see it we are different and there is i do like i i agree with different i i've seen a hundred different women clients of mine do a good squat with completely different form all of them um and i've you know i've also seen really bad form that there's just no talking your way out of but Okay, right. Let me let me move on to like a more big picture. What are some other training errors that you commonly see? You know, for example, like a rushed return to training post injury or surgery, or suboptimal recovery in a training program, poor nutrition to support the physique goal. Kind of what are the big client downfalls or gaps in the knowledge that you you have to try and mend? So the majority of what we'll see might be the sort of. Uh, too much too soon um, or too much without having a, a good base so for instance marathon runners that 
um, might know that or want to have a certain volume of running under their belt. So amount of miles or kilometers that they run each week, they might want it to be at 70 or 80 kilometers a week and they'll start at zero and they'll build up to 70 too quickly. It's really important that we make small, meaningful, graded progressions week on week over time to ensure that there's no big shocks to the body. Um, so yeah, tra- training volume is probably the biggest one. And that can come down to a lifting and um, weightlifting perspective as well. Um, that can be too heavy too often, or the structure of that um, training program might um, be something that programs um, the same movements either every day or too many times a week where actually there's there's less benefit to, to doing it like that. Um, and so it's really important for us to sort of almost reverse engineer that when we first see someone and say, that, what, what, what are you doing? What's the goal? And what have you been doing? Um, and let's meet somewhere in the middle and give you the most uh, informed understanding of what might be the most applicable, realistic and um performance focused goal that you can have that will allow you to still achieve your goal but perhaps do it in a way that reduces the risk of these big spikes in your training that might cause injury soreness um, and furthermore a lack of ability to engage with your program long term um so yeah that that's probably that would be part one the second part of that as you say is, is, is where recovery sits on that so some people might not want to take rest days they'll be self-proclaimed um, exercise addicts that um, need to do something every day um, and need to train at a high intensity every day so those different variables the intensity the volume um, and um, not taking rest or not varying the intensity so um, from uh, running or triathlon or cycling perspective most athletes will spend the majority of their time in around 80 percent 80% of their time in really low heart rate zones and low effort and 20% of their training week might be used to work on speed work or higher intensity power sessions but that, that's in the sort of big bulk preparation phase and then when you start to get towards a race state you might become more and more specific you might um, start to sharpen the axe a little bit by running faster and um, keeping the volume the same but only for a short period of time before you start to taper off before an event uh, and so from a, and I guess in a, from a training perspective, you'd have periodized, um, periodization where you'd spend six weeks doing lighter weight, slower time under tension, um, more hypertrophy type work, and then followed that by six to eight weeks of a strength focus or power focus and giving your body a natural rest from things that might exhaust it or might, if you do for too long, might cumulatively build to add more and more fatigue. Just allows your body to have over time a natural rest period um, and that might be something that's a f- every fourth or fifth week you have a deload or de- a reduced volume week um, or it might be um, yeah that change in in muscle targeting from hypertrophic strength might be enough to reduce some of that more um, demanding and exhausting muscle fatigue from that type of exercise. It's really interesting the the tapering. Do you? So I was going to say. So you actively, especially with performance athletes, you actively program um, deload weeks. And of course, yeah, if, if it's coming close to, to competition date, then obviously then there needs to be a, a period of and it needs to be considered before they compete of rest and recovery. What is your kind of optimal split re um, 
kind of progressive overload and deload? I guess it again depends on the individual and if it's someone that's well trained and has experience, they'll they'll know exactly what works for them. So it's important to tap into their own understanding of what works best for them. Listen to what they've done in the past. Um, I was listening to your um, podcast on condition, uh, sort of body body transformation, and I think it's really important. Oh, with Paul, yeah, with yeah, Paul. yeah, yeah. So looking looking at what the the, the particular athlete or tra- person that's training, what their experiences are, what's worked for them in the past, um, taking that to account, and then um, sort of fight in a in a shared decision making between you and the athlete, finding out what you think is going to be best suited for them to allow them to recover well and to allow them to engage with the um, sort of but most progressive program that sees them get stronger or build muscle size and mass depending on what the target is for that period um, I think most of the majority of the literature would support a minimum of around six to eight weeks as being effective in building muscle size or strength so I think around a six to eight week period would be effective enough and you, I think in um, a normal population outside of um, elite sport I think it's really important to take into consideration life and holidays come around um, like we're working full time so it's really important to take those things into consideration where it might be counterintuitive to try and maintain a really solid structure you know of training for eight weeks on the bounce um, I think you know if you've got kids or if you've got a busy work which involves travel or if you're um, going on holiday or things like Christmas and things that come in the way, it's really important to factor those in and be flexible and allow people to go, actually, do you know what? It's all right if you take a week off or um, if you only go to the gym twice this week, it's that's that's not going to impact your the long-term um, benefits of your training program. Yeah, it's, it's, su- it's such a good point. You have to ask the client about these kinds of things. I had a client recently who, she's a physique client and she wants to do a big photo shoot in January. And I was like, okay, and we do have enough time between now and then, but how are you going to feel dieting over Christmas? And she was like, I grew up in India. I don't give a shit about Christmas. I was like, right, then we're good to go. Most of my clients would be like, oh, I don't know. I think it'll be okay. And I'm like, "Mm, probably not the best timing. And you do need to think about it. And then you get those, you know, we talked, me and Paul talked about this on, on his podcast. Then you get these like, no, I don't give a fuck, like coachable athletes. You know, and that that's why they're the outliers. That's why they tend to be competitive at very high levels because they're like, no, no, if I dig in, I dig in and that's fine. Um, and they're always the easiest to coach. <laughs> but you've got to understand like the gem pop and you've got to understand every client. You have to meet them where they are. I have a couple more things before I ask you kind of my last, my last question. Um, just things I know that from, you know, years of coaching experience, my clients will want me to ask you. Something, and, and I struggled with this until I started seeing you, that a lot of my clients kind of self-diagnose is they say like, oh, I'm quad dominant um, and I really want to start um, targeting my glutes more. What do you tend to find is like the common problem in that vein and how do you help people kind of target more uh, gluteal um, engagement over quad engagement? Uh, so th- I think the first thing to consider is understanding why people think they're quad dominant and what might be driving their thoughts on that. Is that um, that they generally have more muscle bulk in the quads and they are a big muscle group. They're, females tend to be, not to, not always the case, but tend to be more quad dominant naturally anyway. Um, and so it's really important to take, take that into consideration but not be too concerned by it, I think. Um, 
training programs that involve a rounded and structured approach to challenging all muscle groups um, should, in theory, allow you to um, utilize muscle groups that aren't just quads. And it's that there'll be positions of like, in certain movements that be advantageous to loading different muscle groups more. There'll be some movements that, depending on the angle of your knee and the position that you're in, will preference quads versus glutes. And so it's important to understand how to change a movement to target different muscle groups. Um, but a, a, a well-structured, rounded training program should include exercises that get you to extend your hips and focus on the posterior chain. Um, and that sometimes people will be like, I just continue to feel it in my quads, whatever I do, even in this exercise that um, is trying to isolate glutes, I still feel it in my quads. Um, and so there, there may be an element of um, uh, yeah preference on the stronger muscle groups there that people would tend to rely on. There's no reason why you, with the right coaching or the right sort of position that you put in, you can't target posterior chain more. It's something that if you think about an exercise, like let's think about a step up or a, or a split squat, you're going from a hip flex position to a hip extended position and that you can't get there without using um, your glutes. So th they are working and some of those big compound movements, they just won't feel like they fatigue or as, are, are as isolated as something like um, a hip thrust or a single leg bridge because you're not you're working that muscle on its own and um, it's and for sport and for exercise our muscles work in pairs and they co-contract and it's important for us to get them working in unison together rather than in isolation um, it's important to do both but glutes aren't completely off when you're doing all exercise it just might be that they won't fatigue as much because they're a bigger muscle group that um, might be able to tolerate a bit more You see, especially now on Instagram, you know, you see all these people like sh shouting about form and there's a lot of, um, I don't know, I guess evangelical <laughs> bashing like, from people who I'm not entirely, I don't entirely agree with all the time. And I do think that like, while that's great to get people to think about different movement patterns and think about different um, flexion and extension and how to get different muscles working. And I really like it as like a thinking point. I think if you really are struggling with something, go and see a physio and say, hey, I've been training for three years and I still have this issue. And just having someone step back who can look at your body literally like it is a, a textbook of, of physiology and be like, oh, okay, try do this instead. Oh, you did, that didn't work? Okay, well, instead try do this. And then while you do that, also try do that. And eventually you'll get there. Like it took me and James like a couple of a couple of uh, corrections on a split squat for me to finally be like, ow, I felt that in my glute for the first time ever. And again, like I'm a qualified PT. I'm quite good in my body. I'm quite physical, balanced, strong, aware, physically aware. But it took him and it took like a good 20 minutes of work for him to be like, to make it happen for me. Um, so I honestly cannot recommend it enough, especially if this is something you're really passionate about or do for a living, just going to see someone and being assessed. Um, so the next, the last question that I have for you is a bit of a random red herring, but a couple of weeks ago, I had a client of mine who's gotten really into cycling and now she wants to get quite competitive. So I've kind of referred her to someone else because this is not my remit. Um, and I also sent her a post that you did recently. I think it was a couple months ago. And she messaged me back and she said, 
I have no idea what I just read. I don't know what I just read. And I was like, well, you're soon going to learn if you want to go into competitive cycling. But it kind of, I don't know, when I was writing your questions, I thought that could be fun and helpful for my audience. So I wanted to do a bit of a, a quick fire round with you on terminology. And, and there's only five of them. And I feel very confident you'll be able to knock it out very quickly. But um, I wanted to ask, okay, so the first one is, what is the difference between aerobic and anaerobic exercise? So aerobic exercise, and this is cardiovascular exercise. You could include some low-level circuit type exercise as well as aerobic because you're not working to exhaustion. Um, you're, work, you're using the aerobic system, which doesn't, um, which utilizes more oxygenated blood, um, and is a sort of, if you're thinking about it in a uh, in a comparison to anaerobic exercise, aerobic is the easy stuff. Um, <laughs> that you can do forever, like walking, cycling at a lower intensity, running at an easy pace, um, swimming, all easy paces that don't require you to um, involve your anaerobic system, which is the other side of that with sprinting, high intensity efforts, um, less availability of oxygen um, for for those efforts. Okay. Explain the different heart rate zones and how they dictate different uses of energy within the body. Heart rate zones um, can be measured through, well, firstly, you need something that can measure your heart rate. Um, And the the sort of true, the truest and the most scientific side of it will be doing it against um, having blood lactate taken. You find your different training zones based on where your lactate changes. Um, But without that, you'd maybe put them in as five, five zones where you have zone one or, or zone yeah zone one that's really easy um, walking. Heart rate is below a certain level depending on what, if you're able to measure it. But if you're not able to measure your heart rate and you don't have a heart rate monitor, then it's things that you can do that really don't break a sweat walking uh, where you can hold a conversation um, and that you are, um, you're, you're not accumulating lactate that's going to induce fatigue um, when you start to go into more high intensity work zone two would be similar but just maybe a little bit more you can still hold a conversation of maybe 15 words and depending on your age and your maximum heart rate you might be able to you'll be exercising with a heart rate below 130 140 if not a little bit less depending on the person um, and their age and that again involves activities that might be sustained efforts at, at a low intensity and sort of zone one and zone two is where the majority of cyclists or runners or triathletes might spend the majority of their training blocks when they're building volume so that there's less um, risk of injury um, and less risk of overtraining and that you, when you want to turn on the intensity into your sort of zone three fours and fives then you've got the um physical capacity to tolerate sustained efforts at that level zone three is aerobic and um it's also above um, the second lactate turn point if you're looking at how a, lap, how a lactate graph um, builds when you're testing blood lactate but we won't go too deep into that because it's probably not hugely applicable to everyone um but it's sort of you go for a run um and it helps you out a little bit and you can't hold a conversation of over 15 words and um you can sustain that for maybe up to an hour, um, if not a little bit longer, depending on the person and how fit you are and the activity that you prepared for and how long you've been training. You might be able to sustain that for 
a lot longer. It's sort of some in some respects seen as a little bit of a dead zone for training, especially if you're doing endurance sports, if you're training in that aerobic area. Um, so you want to try and spend the majority of it in zone one to two and then um, flickers of zone four and above um, when you when you need to in that 20%. Um, zone four is sort of your more tempo and threshold efforts, which is like um, really it's where you want to turn the speed and the intensity up for cycling. It might be at um, FTP or if you're your power on the bike, or it might be at um, intensities um, that are above that where you can't talk, you're pushing yourself quite hard, um, but it's not maximal. And then zone five is max effort, pushing yourself as hard as you can um, into the red, the red zone and up towards max maximum heart rate that can only be sustained for short periods. Um, but again, if you're a trained individual that's been training for a long period of time, you might be able to sustain it for, for longer. Um, it's important to note that some, it's important to say you don't want to try and don't want to spend all your time in that um, high heart rate zone. And if your um, heart rate zone is always high for what's perceived as an easy run, then it's really, or an easy bike ride, it's really important to take it easier and train your heart in that lower zone works that might be uh, spinning your legs a bit slower putting less resistance on the bike doing less hills or and when with running it might be doing things like run walk where you're training your heart and you're not letting your heart rate go over a certain rate or you're not pushing yourself into a area where you can't hold a conversation or you're doing too much because sweat is a poor metric for performance uh, it's really important that we don't try and push it to complete exhaustion all the time um, one because the risk of injury will increase um, substantially the more you're in that zone the longer you do it yes and also lack of enjoyment <laughs> yeah exactly well it's depending on who you are some um, people love it yeah that's that is bad so well okay so if I, okay in layman's terms now so we don't need to get too deep into this but i love it that you you already went there and this is my next one what is lactate Lactate is a product that is made by the blood that um, is a biomarker of fatigue. It comes along and it introduces itself um, when the effort is past what's sustainable for long periods. So let's say you've, you've gone out for, you've had breakfast and you've used that to fuel your run or your activity. The lactate is the body sort of turning that fuel into energy. Um, but the more you push yourself the more the lactate builds up and the more lactate that builds up there's only so long that that's going to be sustainable so it's important um, and, and a lot of athlete elite athletes so triathletes or cyclists or runners will um, be constantly monitoring their lactate build up um, to make sure that they're exercising in a level that doesn't build up too much lactate that doesn't accumulate too much fatigue or too much um, yeah too much fatigue that means that the efforts aren't sustainable um, and they can then recover better um, and then go for longer. And it's something like with any training program, the more you work in an easier zone without building up lactate, the more you'll be able to work for longer in that zone or um, you can sustain harder efforts without the buildup of blood lactate. When you say that they monitor it and then they program their training based on, on their responses, they do that in a lab, right? And then they take that forward. Uh, yeah, so you can do lab testing. Um, if you look at some, uh, it's quite um, in triathlon, a couple of guys, Norwegian guys that, um, and a lot of triathletes now, if they've got access to it, they'll be doing it. They can You can buy your own kit and test your own blood lactate and do it within the okay. session out on the road, on the bike. So oh, God, can, you know, 
going to be like the new fad thing. It's oh. going to go from like specifically for athletes to now some dickhead is going to write a book and say everyone should be doing this for some nonsense yeah. reason. Um, I can see it coming. In in the lab, what they'll do is they'll be measuring your heart rate at the same time and the power output. Let's say for cycling, you'll you'll have a you'll be on a bike that can measure power, and you'll have a heart rate monitor on your chest that will be able to accurately um, give heart rate zones. And so they'll measure your blood lactate at different intervals and different stages. Um, and then they'll correlate your lactate turning point one and two to the heart rate and the power efforts that you're putting out um, on the bike or when running, for instance. And then you'll use that as your training guide for that particular block of training to gauge what where your training zones actually are um, and where you're building up lactate. And the idea is that you build sustained power or sustained efforts. Um, so as you get fitter, you should be able to work at the same intensity but for less heart rate cost, which also comes alongside less lactate buildup. Okay, what is VO2 max? Uh, VO2 max, uh, it's the maximum rate of oxygen that your body is able to use during exercise. So the fitter you are, the higher your VO2 max is, will be. Okay, honestly, James, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And I had such a good chat with you. And I know it's tough when we want to try and make it as digestible and easy to understand to the whole audience as we can and you are so well schooled and well educated on what you do and also you know you get into what you do because if you're anything like me you're a bit of a geek about things and you really want to be like go all yeah full-blown yeah. science but you absolutely smashed it and i really enjoyed that um all my listeners out there um if they want to find you where can they find you um so uh, I'm on Instagram, I use it a little bit less now than I used to, but I'm at Rehab James. Um, but I'm predominantly I'm based in London and Parsons Green at Beyond Health, um, and so we do both in person and um, virtual sessions. Um, so happy to catch up with anyone uh, if they want to have a chat about um, training or injuries or whatever it might be. Yeah, um, I cannot recommend him enough. And everybody else listening, if you liked this podcast episode or any of them for that matter, please like, please subscribe, please leave a review, rate. It really, really helps. Thank you all so much. I will be back next week with another brilliant guest and I'll see you soon, James. Thanks for having me, Chloe. Sports Social Podcast Network.